Um, and let me say, uh, first of all, let's call it what it is. Uh, it's awkward, right? So I'm standing here, and usually when I'm up here, I'm over there. And actually, I realized first service is even more awkward because Jeff's not here. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel this obligation like I'm up here. I should be playing bass. So. Um, but uh, thanks, Jake. And speaking of Jake, um, I don't know if you guys remember, um, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you probably don't. Um, but back in March, um, as we were traveling through the book of John, uh, Jake shared with us. And uh, I believe during his message, uh, Jake referred to himself as a second string wide receiver. Um, and then a few weeks ago, Pastor Scott uh, led worship and referred to himself as a third-string worship pastor, and then also the second-string uh, adult pastor um, presiding over the baptisms. Well, guess what? This morning, you guys get the water boy, all right? Um, and if I'm being kind to myself, the equipment manager at best. So, so that being said, um, show of hands, how many people here um, who've been traveling with us uh, through the book of John since January remember that we were in the book of John? way back in January. Excellent. Maybe more than half of you. This is awesome. So yeah, back in January, which I don't know about you, but certainly to me, feels like it was like three years ago. Uh, but January, uh, we started in the book of John. And uh, Sean got that started off, uh, Pastor Sean did. Um, and uh, in that, in introdu introducing the book of John, uh, we learned that John wrote his gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, so, but since it's been like, I don't know, three years, three months, something like that, uh, I thought I'd start by kind of giving us a big 30,000-foot overview um, and kind of reminder of where we've been. I'm not going to go into detail um, because all the messages are available if you want to go back and, and listen to them, but figure we start with kind of uh, an overview of John's gospel. So John divided his gospel into two major sections, right? We dealt with the first section before summertime. That was chapters 1 through 12. And then now we're going to dive back into John in the second section, chapters 13 through 21. Now, chapters 1 through 12, in scholarly circles, it's commonly known as the book of signs. The second half, 13 through 21, known as the book of glory, or the book of the glorification. We'll talk about why in a second here. So John's first 12 chapters gives us this kind of broad overview of Jesus' public ministry within the social and political and religious context and landscape that existed as Jesus gathered followers to himself and even drove some people away. And throughout these chapters, these first 12 chapters, we encounter seven signs, right? Book of signs, seven signs. We encounter seven signs that include a wedding party where Jesus turns this large volume of water into some of the most amazing wine people had ever tasted. It was probably a red, uh, maybe like a cab or a Pinot Noir. I don't know. I'm, I'm a coffee guy. I'm not a wine guy. Sorry. Jesus fed a massive amount of people with just five loaves of barley bread and a couple of fish. And there was even leftovers afterwards. And they were probably some of the best tasting leftovers ever. I think after that, no leftovers ever tasted good again the second day. 
Jesus walked on water. He healed people and even raised a man from the dead. And that's where we sit when we come to the close of that first half of John's gospel. And it's here with that last sign, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, with Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem before the start of Passover holiday, that we find this tension begin to build. And this is where we find ourselves now beginning chapter 13, the book of glory, as John now zooms in and narrows his narrative to this intimate time that Jesus has in his final days with his disciples. Now, if you have your Bible or your smartphone, I guess those are a thing these days. The young kids are doing it. Um, But open up to John 13, uh, and we're going to start with verse 1. John records, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now hang on to that word part. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our ears, our eyes to you. We invite you in to rummage around in our hearts. We gather this week 
like we do every week, to center our lives around you, to be reminded of the story that we belong to. This time is for you and your glory, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we dive into this, I want to talk to you guys about something that is near and dear to my heart and probably the hearts of many of you here and joining us online. Who knows what this is? Show of hands. Excellent, most of you. Um, so we can thank Ole Christensen that these things have been in production since like 1947, all right? Uh, it's a Lego brick, need I say more. Um, so many of us have either had the joy of giving the gift of Lego or receiving the gift of Lego. It's part of our childhood. Um, so many of us have stepped on them. Anybody step on one of these things? Yeah, right, the groan, you remember that pain. Um, we've sucked them up in the vacuum cleaner, which makes a great noise. We've chased the dog around the house because it decided to make it a snack. Um, and may have taken an unexpected trip to the doctor and then to the operating room because your daughter, when she was a toddler, decided she was going to stick one up her nose. Yes. Just leave that for your imagination. Now, next picture. Um, anyone here who's a Star Wars fan might recognize that ship and the guy General Grievous um, and knows that this is probably one of the worst ideas for a villain in Star Wars. Just saying. If you want to come up and debate me after that, that's fine. I will probably win. Anyway, um, but one of the, I have this picture up here because you can see behind the Lego model, there's instructions, all right? Now, Legos come packaged with these instructions. They come in um, bags that are numbered and everything's ordered the way it's supposed to. And there's a picture on the front of the box and the instructions show you how to build that Lego model so it looks like what's on the front of the box. Now, if you're like me, when you give the gift of Lego, you expect that they're gonna get built and that they will remain frozen in this state of Lego magnificence forever. I mean, after all, they are made of plastic, and they're very biodegradable and undigestible. Um, and probably a thousand years from now, they are going to be the curious spectacle of some archeologic dig. So in fact, my wife bought me a uh, Lego Beatles yellow submarine several years ago, and it is still on the bookshelf in our office in that state of magnificence. But if you have kids who have Legos, you know that they don't remain in that state forever, in that state of Lego engineering perfection, right? So next picture, there we go. That is the Lego table in our basement. Now our son received that Lego set at one point in his history and I'm sure in there somewhere is one of the pieces that belong to that. But while kids initially will build that Lego set according to those instructions, their expectations of what those Legos are for are completely different, and you can see that. And yes, we have a lot of Legos, don't judge us, please. 
You could say their expectations might sit in tension with our expectations of what those Legos are for. In fact, there's even a movie that was made built around this entire idea, the Lego movie. But I mean, honestly, if we're honest, it's just a giant Lego commercial, really. I mean, their stock probably went wild after that movie was released. But I bring this up because as we dive into chapter 13, we encounter this tension of expectation between Peter's comments that are loaded with context and background and Jesus' expectations that are meant to demonstrate something powerful about what it looks like to be a part of the new human family that God is building in Jesus. Now, I want to pause for a second because I want us to understand kind of where Peter was coming from. Peter, as well as the rest of the disciples, and a lot of the people that saw Jesus and saw what he was doing at his time. Israel was a nation state, all right? They had a king that ruled them. They weren't always like that. They kind of started out as this roaming tribe. We read through the Old Testament. They were led by Moses out of Egypt. Then Joshua led them. And then this group of people called the Judges kind of took over at some point in their history as well. They weren't great people all the time. And then at some point, Israel wanted a king. They said, Lord, we want a king. And God said, okay, if you want a king, you got it. But you get everything that goes along with a king. Their first king was Saul. You guys remember Saul? Great guy, huh? Not exactly. But their second king... Second king was a guy named David. He was a shepherd. He was described as a man after God's own heart. He was chosen by God to lead Israel. But God also said something. In the book of 2 Samuel, God speaks to the prophet Nathan, specifically in chapter 7. And in verse 16, he says that David's house and kingdom will endure forever before me that his throne will be established forever, forever. Like, cue the clip from Sandlot, forever. Some of you get that. Some of you will get on the way home. But God promised that his throne would always be around. And God doesn't make light of his promises, does he? But practically speaking as a nation, you could say there was a bit of political turmoil. And over the centuries... The nation divided into the northern and southern kingdom. And there were conquests by foreign powers like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. And at the time when John wrote his Gospels, by the empire of Rome. I mean, can you imagine, imagine just for a second, waking up every day and being reminded that you're a prisoner in your own land. Their history is kind of a mess. And the vast majority of those kings in the northern and southern kingdom, they weren't such great people. You could kind of say, if you don't mind me saying, it was a bit of a dumpster fire. But, but, through the turmoil and even exile, God spoke through his prophets and announced many times that an anointed one, a Messiah, 
would come and restore his people. Now, back to where we are in chapter 13. Jesus, excuse me, the Jewish people, they were gathering to celebrate the Passover meal, the Passover holiday, which is really important because that's when they remember how God delivered them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, Jesus wasn't the only person who had come. There had been people before him who come claiming to be the Messiah. There was a group of people called the Zealots uh, who were basically hill thugs that would carry out attacks and assassination attempts against Roman officials. There were people really trying to kick Rome out and restore the kingdom. So I can imagine when Peter and the disciples see Jesus get on the back of a donkey and come descending down the Mount of Olives at the beginning of the Passover festival towards the tens of thousands of people who had gathered outside of Jerusalem and were waving palm branches, shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, which is Aramaic for save us now. I can imagine that they were thinking, oh, here he is. Here's our Messiah. Here's our conquering king. This is it. He is going to come, and he's the one who's going to kick Rome out. He's going to overthrow the empire. And they would not have missed the fact that this act that Jesus did prior to chapter 13, this entry, they wouldn't have missed what it meant, that this was what a conquering king and hero did after coming back from a successful battle to share in his stories. And this line of thinking is elsewhere too. In the beginning of Acts, the disciples ask the risen Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I can imagine the slow blink of Jesus, like, nope, not for you guys to know. And even Matthew records uh, Jesus being asked by the disciples, so Lord, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Matthew records Jesus asking the disciples a very pointed question. Who do you say I am? And it's Peter who responds, you are the Christ. They knew who they were following. So after seeing numerous, and mir- numerous miracles and hearing Jesus teach with authority in the synagogues, you can only imagine that as they gathered for Passover at that meal that evening, they're probably thinking to themselves, oh, here we go. This is it. Jesus is going to reveal to us his battle plan. He's going to pull out a map of Jerusalem, and we're going to find out where the armies are hidden, and we're finally going to kick Rome out. We're going to be restored as a nation. This is liberation. But that's not what happens, is it? Jesus doesn't reveal a grand battle strategy, at least in the way we would think he should reveal a grand battle strategy. No, what he does is he gets up from the meal, takes off his outer garments, puts a towel around his waist, gets some water, and begins to humbly wash the feet of his disciples. Now, roads today, they're fairly clean. I certainly wouldn't eat off of them, but roads in the first century were a little bit different, as you can imagine. Most people walked around in sandals, and those roads also served as bathrooms for animals. So people's feet were dusty, and they were dirty. What Jesus does at this moment is so absolutely shocking 
and so scandalous that honestly, I don't know that Peter can respond any other way. You're going to wash my feet? You? No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. What Jesus does is he essentially strips down to his undergarments and performs an act that is so menial and lowly that women were actually not permitted to do it at that time. This was something that was reserved for servants, certainly not the soon-to-be king. This was something that the conquering Messiah doesn't do. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. Because as John recorded, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. What Peter didn't realize was that Jesus was demonstrating here something that was born out of the security he had in his relationship with his heavenly Father. I think he knew how his disciples, how Peter would respond to this act. And at this moment, Jesus completely shattered the expectations of the people in that room. What Jesus does sits in tension and in stark contrast with what the disciples had in mind. And I love how John points out and connects what he does with that relationship Jesus has with his Father. And don't lose track of that, because we're going to circle back around to that. Let's read again real quick what Jesus has to say about what he just did, starting in verse 12. When he finished washing their feet, he put, his clothes, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I mean, Jesus clearly points out that, yes, I'm teacher and Lord. That's right. Rabbi, Adonai. And that no servant's greater than his master, no messenger greater than the one who sent him. But what Jesus does is he follows up and gives them an example. What Jesus does in that moment is he shows them, you know what, but this, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a part of the new human family. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. And he says something else kind of interesting just before that. Because what he says to Peter in response to him, he says, if you don't let me do this, then you don't have a part with me. And the word part, it's easy to skip over because it's in English. But in the original Greek, that word part is the Greek word meros. And they would have understood that word because that word is weighty and significant because it's loaded with imagery that's related to land inheritance. Just let that sink in for a second. Because what Jesus is basically telling Peter and the others who got their feet washed after him is that Jesus has to do this work or he won't have an inheritance in what's coming. And that's a pretty huge consequence. And I can imagine that everyone in that room probably were like, oh, 
gotcha. Because land inheritance was kind of a big deal in Israel's history. What Jesus does at this moment is he presents his expectations that, again, sit in tension with the expectations of the disciples and followers. He's declared at this moment that very clearly the kingdom that he came to proclaim, it would not result by conquering or overthrowing Rome with military force. And Jesus wants this transformational experience. He wants this moment to sink in deep with his disciples. He wants to produce human beings who will go out and do the same. Human beings who bear his image into the world by setting an example amongst themselves. He says, you should also wash one another's feet. Now that you know these things, you should do them. Now, I'm going to pause in John. I want everybody to turn to Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Specifically, chapter 2. While you guys are finding that, those of you with smart devices a little quicker than these things. Um, Paul and Peter knew each other, right? So they, they hung out a bit. Um, and I like to imagine that Paul, um, after his time with Peter, would sit and kind of reflect on the conversations he had with Peter. That he would think about um, some of the questions that Paul had to Peter, that Paul would, uh, would even reflect maybe on this scene, because I'm sure this was probably pretty significant in Peter's life. But Paul writes this in 2 Philippians, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to skip down. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, Paul writes, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them, like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I'm going to read a story for you. On the night of January 30th, 1956, in Montgomery, Alabama, a segregationist ascended the five steps to the front porch of the white clapboard parsonage where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and his family lived when, at the age of 27, he was the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And a couple weeks before, he'd actually just celebrated his 27th birthday. He was a young guy. On that porch, the man planted a stick of dynamite and ran. King's wife 
and a church member, Mary Lucy Williams, were in the living room, and he heard the man outside. They ran and grabbed their newborn baby daughter, Yolanda, and escaped the house just before the dynamite exploded and tore a hole in the porch, shattered windows, and destroyed one of the pillars supporting the porch. King was actually down the road a ways, speaking at another church uh, to a group of about 2,000 people. And when he heard what had happened, he immediately ran from the church, got home, and found that his wife and daughter and Mary were unharmed. Now, an angry crowd began to gather outside of his house on the lawn. Some of them had knives, some of them had clubs, some of them had guns. He walked down on his front porch, and the people let out a cheer that reports tell could be heard blocks away. But King raised his hand and silenced the crowd. He simply asked them to stay calm. And then he said this, we believe in law and order. Don't get your weapons. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what God said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. Love them and let them know you love them. Other reports say that that night, they actually began singing Amazing Grace instead of rioting. And when all was said and done, King dismissed the crowd, telling them to go home and don't worry. Again, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Imagine with me for a moment what would have happened that night had King decided to act out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Imagine with me if he had not valued others above himself and looked to his own interests. Imagine if King had decided that night that it was his feet that needed washed first. I imagine things would have gone a lot different that night. In 2007, David Kinnaman, who's the president of the Barna Group, basically they do surveys and gather research um, on topics related to the church and faith. But he wrote a book called Unchristian, What a New Generation Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And in this book, he says, the research for our book showed that 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say the lifestyles of those believers are noticeably different in a good way. 15% of those young non-Christians say the Christians they know have lives that are different in a good way. And in 2013, they did another survey in research and asked the questions, do Christians look more like Jesus or the Pharisees? I will leave it to your imagination what the results of that survey largely showed. See, people outside of the church family, they look in and they have expectations. They expect us to respond to others in a particular way. They expect us to vote in a particular way, think about certain issues in a certain way. And it's subtle, but it's an expectation. And I think it's one that results from a long period, years, of watching how we within the church family do things, what we do, how we treat other people, 
whose feet get washed first? Especially when it's people we don't agree with. Especially when it's people who stand in opposition to us. See, I didn't forget about Judas back in John 13, because he's featured in there too. You know, Judas, who's always introduced as the one who betrayed Jesus. See, there's something interesting that John doesn't say. John doesn't say, oh, you know, Jesus didn't wash Judas's feet. He made Judas wash his feet because he knew that Satan had already prompted him to betray him. I think it's kind of clear that Jesus even washed Judas's feast that night. Now, I'm going to show you a couple more pictures as we land the plane here. This first picture is coming slowly. There we go. Um, this picture is like circa 1950s. Uh, this is Arco, Idaho. Um, it's pretty nondescript. Uh, there's not a lot of green. There's a lot of brown. Um, but it looks like a lot of small rural towns um, kind of dotted on a highway out west. Now, this picture shares something in uh, share something similar with this last picture. Many of you have seen these images before. Many of you know where these images were taken. These are the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in 1945. Now, Josh, why did you show us these two pictures? Well, you see, Arco, Idaho was the first city in the world to be powered by atomic energy. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the first two cities in the world to be destroyed by atomic energy. I'm ending with these images because I want these images to kind of stick with us this, this week. As we reflect over John 13, as we reflect over the disciples' expectation of the Messiah and what Jesus, his expectation was. See, these images represent a choice. They are two completely different outcomes that sit in tension, but they are two outcomes that start from the same place. Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to wake up. There's going to be emails. There's going to be kids who need things. Fed and dressed. The dogs are going to need let out. Toys are going to be littered all over the living room. Unless you're obsessive compulsive, and then they get put away the night before. Come on, amen. Cars that won't start. And then Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning, a lot of us are going to wake up. We're going to reluctantly drag ourselves out of bed into work. There's going to be disagreeable employees, coworkers, conversations, situations that are just awful, seeking to tear us down. And the list could go on. But remember those two pictures. Remember the scene that John sets up for us in chapter 13. And remember what John said about Jesus, that he knew the Father, he'd put all things under him, under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus was very confident in his relationship with the Father. He rested confidently in this. 
And we have to ask ourselves, all of us here, have we really allowed that transformation to hit us? Have we really been transformed by Jesus? Do we trust Jesus the way he trusted the Father? That we can do this? Do we allow the Holy Spirit to rummage around in our hearts to find those places, those, those parts that look more like atomic weapons when we interact with other people? Jesus was given authority and power. The disciples expected him to wield it one way, but Jesus had radically different plans because he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage. And I think even today, Jesus is saying, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So, what if we take that example to heart? What if we actually live like we mean it? And I don't mean this to be, uh, I don't mean to beat anybody up with this, because I know there's a lot of good that goes on. Dallas Willard said, the church of Jesus Christ is just fine. What if, as Paul wrote, we really consider the needs of others above our own? What if we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Becoming the humans that God has created us to be. And I think tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, we get up and we ask ourselves the question, in every conversation, in every situation we find ourselves in, whose feet? I don't think there's any place, any aspect of our lives that's off limits or exempt from that question to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform our hearts. Whose feet? Amen.